My name's Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. And fun fact, uh, my dad and my grandfather both went to SMU. So go ponies. All right. Grateful if this is your first time joining us um, from any college. We, are, we welcome all college students here in this church. What else am I kind of missing a few? Okay, so we're glad you joined us today. Uh, turn with me if you have a Bible to 1 Corinthians, right before 2 Corinthians, and we're going to work through this in the New Testament. We're going to be walking through this in the fall. As you're turning there, uh, here's the question, why 1 Corinthians? Why spend uh, 14, 15 weeks working through a letter written by a guy named Paul uh, that he wrote to a young church in Corinth about 20 years after the death of Jesus. Why Corinthians? Here's why. And we're going to walk through three reasons we need 1 Corinthians this morning. The first one is this. Why 1 Corinthians? Because we are more like Corinth than we realize. A letter that's 2,000 years old and not much has changed. So, little background. Through the years, Corinth had become one of the great cities of ancient Greece, uh, then, in the year 146 B.C., it was destroyed by the Roman army. About 100 years later, in uh, 44 B.C., Julius Caesar refounded the city, and he gave it this name, Colonia Iulia Corinthians, which is uh, translated Colony of Corinth in honor of Julius, which if you were here last week, we talked about how kings and political leaders would often name cities after themselves, one of the perks of being king. They also named an orange smoothie after him. That came a long time later. But has anybody else had an orange Julius? Like, I, they're still around. There's thousands of them. Okay. Well, overnight, overnight, uh, money started flowing into the new Corinth, in part because of its strategic location on the Isthmus. I've been working on that pronunciation all week, the isthmus between two halves of Greece, which I think you can see here. I tried to circle Corinth there. And so you can see how naturally it really was a crossroads, not just east and west by sea, but north and south by road. Now, in order to get a ship across Corinth, if you were taking it from one sea to another, there's about six miles of land between these two bodies of water. And so they would have to drag and lift up the boat out of the water and drag it across those six miles of the city, which allowed these ships to avoid having to sail all the way around uh, the southern part of Greece. Now, what do you think all these sailors did those days that they're just kind of hanging out in Corinth while their ship is being dragged across the city? They've been at sail for months on end, and they get a couple days off in Corinth, and they get to blow off some steam and have some fun and get into a little trouble. And it wasn't just the sailors. You see, all these travelers and merchants who were making their way through Corinth, they brought with them all this money. And so Corinth, as a port city, became known for its wealth, its decadence, and its party scene. They had a saying about the city, this particular city. They would say, what happens in Corinth? What? Stays in Corinth, which is never really true. But I digress. So if you take time to read through 1 Corinthians uh, and just a heads up, we have uh, purchased a number of these scripture journals, which basically have the text of 1 Corinthians. There is room to take notes and highlight whatever it is for you. And we've just, a lot of people have found it helpful. You can bring this for the next number of weeks and take your notes and just kind of journey with us through 1 Corinthians. But if 
you read through this letter, you'll see how the pastor, Paul, is trying to make sense of and, and navigate what he sees going on in the fast city of Corinth. I mean, there were parts of Corinth that would make deep elm on a Saturday night seem boring. As one writer put it, Athens was famous, Corinth was infamous. There was one hill that was overlooking the city where there was a temple to Aphrodite, and it said there were a thousand temple prostitutes. In fact, um, archaeologists have uh, found coins minted in Corinth that had a kind of marketing pitch on them, the coins that said, don't miss, let's see if we got this, do we have this uh, quote here coming up next? It says, don't miss the Aphrodite experience in Corinth. Like, this is like the billboards you see in some parts of the city, right? So there is a level of out of control, late nights, sleeping around, lots of drinking. In fact, there's a moment later in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 where Paul has to address some of this in the church. He says, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you, okay? In other words, guys, really not happy about what I'm about to have to talk to you about, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worst. For, in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there are divisions among you, which this is really the heart of where we're headed today. But look then at verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, and another gets drunk. So they're coming to the communion table as a church, and some church members are getting drunk. How that happened, I don't know. That's, I mean, that's a lot of communion packets, but when it was, it created all this division in the congregation, and, and, and in fact, other people, likely the poor, aren't even being invited into the meal. Paul even uses this phrase, and the translation was a little choppy, but he says, each one goes ahead with his own meal. In other words, some of the believers are splitting off on their own to have their own little private exclusive Lord's Suppers. It'd be like those of you who are really good friends in this church, and you just decide one day that you don't want to have to go through the bother of taking communion with everybody else in the church, because it takes a while, and you got to wait in line, and you're in the line, and then you look over, and you see Larry, and you don't really like Larry, and then you see somebody else who sued you all those years back in a business deal, and you don't want to share with him, and then it just takes a while, and there's people that you don't know, and you don't like the way they're dressed, you don't really like the music that's going on during communion, so hey, why don't we just go and have our own little exclusive communion table. And this was happening in Corinth, and it was creating division and factions inside the church, which as a pastor, I am grateful that does not happen here, that we don't have little rogue communion factions, at least that I know of. But have you ever experienced cliques inside a church community? And maybe you haven't experienced that here, but somewhere in your life as a follower of Jesus. And Paul says, when that begins to make its way into the church, it can destroy what God has put together. And so we're going to have to address that this fall. No cliques, no factions, no excluding certain kinds of people. Now, there's something else about Corinth that might help you to see the similarities with a culture like a city that is Dallas. And it's that Corinth had a big ego, it was a town that turned showboating into an art form. It, this was a city that was growing in fame, and as it did, the people of Corinth were looking after fame. Again, archaeologists, they found artifacts that seemed to distinguish the ancient city Corinth from other ancient cities from that time, and it's that everything they dig up in Corinth seems to have a plaque on it. 
Like every building that is dedicated to someone in honor of this person or due to the generosity of that person and all these lists of honorific titles that just are etched into stone everywhere. This was a city of big egos and lots of self-promotion and it's beginning to seep into the church. And so one of the questions that 1 Corinthians asks is how do you transform people who come to faith in Jesus out of a big ego, life is all about me, me, me kind of culture? How do you do that? So let's look at Paul's opening words in verse one. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, who was the, basically the pastor after Paul left, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified, keyword, in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So notice that Paul begins not by saying, listen up, Corinthians, I've heard about what's going on in your crazy church, and just stop it, heathens. No, he says, you who are saints, set apart, sanctified, and made holy in Christ Jesus. And just a little extra credit, we didn't do this in the 930 because they just weren't really paying attention, but we'll do it here in Elliott Hall. That verb sanctified, which means to make holy in the original Greek in which the New Testament was written, the verb is in the perfect tense. And the perfect tense in the Greek is used to describe a completed action in the past that produced results that are still in effect all the way up to the present. It's used to describe a completed action which produces results that are still in effect all the way to the present. Paul says, to those sanctified, made holy, something that was completed in the past with results that are still having an impact and an effect up to the present. It's like Paul's trying to get through to them from the start. What matters is not your title or your achievements or the money you have or the pleasure that you have or what other people think about you. It's what God is doing and mostly what God has already accomplished through his death and resurrection on the cross to change you from the inside out. It is not about curb appeal or the stuff that Corinth prizes. It's about what Jesus on the cross has done to make you holy. So, big egos, big money, a culture awash in immorality. We are more like Corinth than we realize. But then second thing, why Corinth? And this, this is so critical for us, especially in this moment and for the church in America. In 1 Corinthians, Paul is teaching us to look at culture through the lens of the church and not the church through the lens of our culture. Or maybe, maybe more appropriately, he's teaching us to look at culture through the lens of the cross and not the cross through the lens of our culture. The church, the gathering of Jesus' followers is not just one more add-on that helps to round out and inform our lives alongside all these other allegiances and memberships and things that we may affiliate with like politics or class or any other worldview out there. The church, and more to the point, the cross of Jesus Christ is what defines us. It is the lens. It's the lens through which we make sense of and interpret everything else in life. 
And this is really the core message of 1 Corinthians. And so here's what Paul writes, chapter 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As followers of Jesus, and I, I assume that not everyone in this room would describe themselves in that way, but for those of you who trust and follow Jesus, the cross is the lens through which we understand and make sense of everything else in life. So let's unpack this. Paul spent the better part of 18 months uh, investing in and growing up this Corinthian church. And in that time, he got to know like the street level personality, the culture of Corinth pretty well. He knew what these Christians were up against. And his answer to all the darkness and the wild behaviors of a church that had gone off the rails, they're suing each other, they're coming to church drunk and sleeping around, getting all these fights. I mean, it's all there in 1 Corinthians. And Paul says, the answer to all this is not more rules, stricter laws, harsher discipline. And certainly there are boundaries and guardrails for how we're to live, and we're going to get to some of those. But from the beginning, what Paul says is, I'm going to teach you to look at everything through the lens of the cross. The decisions you make about how to live and how you engage in culture and how you work with and how you interact with other people, the choices you make with your body and in your marriage and what you do with your money. Every decision is shaped by your knowledge, your vision of the cross, of a God who poured his life out for you in love. He gave up power, he gave up riches, he humbled himself and became nothing to rescue you and me. He says, look to the cross and and look through the cross and behold the love of a crucified God, he who was willing to suffer and die for you. And church, when we do that, when we shape our lives and our families around the cross, people may think we're crazy. They may look at us and our community, like giving up power, surrendering when everybody else is trying to win, loving your enemies even when they wrong you, and they may hurt you, they may even hurt people you love. The world might say, you are fools. But this is actually wisdom, Paul says. This is power. It is in the cross when we begin to look at everything else through this lens and the perspective of what Jesus has done for us on the cross when he poured out his blood and laid down his life. That's what changes you. Which leads to one more reason we need 1 Corinthians, especially in this cultural moment in which we find ourselves right now. And it's that the love of the cross can overcome the deepest divisions that threaten to divide us. So listen to what Paul says near the beginning of this letter, verse 10. He says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be uh, united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people, she's one of the leaders in the church, that there is quarreling among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Christ, or I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, Peter, or I follow Christ. So Paul, after a year and a half in Corinth, eventually he gets run out by the Jewish leaders, which would often happen when Paul was starting a church. And after Paul left, the Corinthians were visited by some subsequent church leaders, one of whom was named Apollo. And these visits, as well intended as they were, they seemed to have divided the loyalties of the church and almost led to this cult of personalities. 
So factions were forming. Some people liked Apollo's preaching. Some people liked Paul's. It'd be a little like, you know, here at Highland Park Press, there were some people who started saying, you know, I just, I follow Jay, right? Jay tells more funny stories in his sermon, and he's got a black belt in martial arts. He's just cooler. And Brian just gets us bored with all this history stuff and his messages. So I'm going to be on Jay's, on Team Jay. Or I follow Nelson because I just like Nelson. Or I follow Emily because Emily's anointed, right? This is not the healthiest thing for the vitality of a church. And so Paul responds almost sarcastically, like, You've got to be kidding me. You are taking the mission, the ecclesia of Jesus, and you're turning it into a popularity contest. And pretty soon, they start latching themselves to different ideas about what's expected from a Christian in terms of behaviors and morals. Can you imagine that? And they're fighting each other. And they're taking sides, which if you want a glimpse of this today, spend like seven minutes on Christian Twitter, and you will see how toxic this stuff gets the infighting in the church, which is why Paul's primary number one appeal to the church in Corinth is unity. Guys, we gotta figure out how to stop fighting each other in here. There's too much work to do, too much darkness and brokenness and families who need to know the hope of Jesus out there and frankly, opposition beyond these walls for us to just stay at each other's necks inside these walls. Our unity, the unity of the church is worth fighting for. It's worth fighting for. And you know, I think it's worth at least naming that this is a part of the story of this church. Some of you who've been around here for decades, you know this all too well. You've seen what division and arguments and infighting can do to hurt people and to split churches and to split even families and husbands and wives who end up like going to different sides. And I know God has been so faithful to redeem that story and there is so much healing, but this just, this isn't just like trivial Bible story stuff for us. This is a part of our story. Now, maybe you're new to this church and you're like, how could that happen? This is such a happy church. Like, what did I miss? But the pain and the wounds and the loss of friendships, this is real stuff and it can happen again, which is why this letter, 1 Corinthians, is such a gift. I mean, think about how fragile this newly formed Corinthian congregation really was, partly because it was so different than anything the Roman world had seen before. It was socially and socioeconomically diverse, rich and poor, landowners and servants, people of noble birth worshiping, upon pe- worshiping alongside people born with nothing. So how do we hold this radical counterculture community together? How do we hold together when ideologies and partisan politics, and cable news, and social media are threatening the oneness of God's mission. And so here's what I wanna leave us with. The brilliance of Paul, that when we allow these divisions to get inside the church, what Paul says is what we're actually doing is we're dividing up the body of Christ himself. If you follow the logic of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians, it basically leads us back to the core of Christianity. So here's the logic. Lots of little gods equal lots of divided up, isolated little groups of people. One great big universal God equals one big universal family. Okay, stay with me here. When you do things that divide up God's family, you deny that there is one universal God. 
And if that weren't enough, Paul takes this a little further. He says that as the church, we are actually more than just the family of God. We are the body of Christ with each of us members and not like names on a list members, but body part members, arms, legs, eyes, and those members. So when you divide up this group that Jesus so identifies with that he calls it his own body, then you not only cut off your nose to spite your face, you cut off Jesus' nose and you scar Jesus' face. What you do to the church, you do to Christ himself. So nasty, divisive, polarizing, toxic behavior in the church is violence against Jesus. Chopping up the church is taking a knife to Jesus. Paul, who of all people learned this on his first day as a Christian. Remember the story on his way to Damascus? He's suddenly thrown back onto the ground by the, by the risen Christ who asked him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? To which Saul responds, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting them. And the risen Jesus says, no, no, no. Whatever you do to them, you are doing to me. So just take a moment. And I want you to look around at each other, like right now. Just put eyes on somebody else in this room for just a moment. You are looking at the physical body of Christ. Reach out and like shake a hand or give a high five or something to the person next to you. Okay? You are touching the body of Christ. So how do we overcome these divisions? How do we protect the unity of the body of Christ that is the church? Well, the answer again is we look to the cross and we look through the cross to see everything and everyone through the lens of the cross of a crucified God who put his needs before, uh, put the needs of others before his own. So let me close with an illustration from history. This week marks the anniversary of VJ Day, which was the formal surrender by Japan of our final victory in World War II. It's one of the noblest military victories in all history. And the writer David Brooks uh, went back and he studied the national mood on that day. And he was surprised to find that there were no high fives, no victory dances, no shouting from the rooftops. What he found was more of a feeling that hardly anyone has anymore and that you seldom see today. And that's humble, self-effacing gratitude. So that Bing Crosby went on national radio and said, all anyone can do is thank God it's over. Or the front page of the Dallas Morning News, which said, President Truman calls upon us to treat the event as a solemn occasion, its momentousness and gravity beyond human comprehension. And David Brooks summed it up by saying that at that time, America was by and large a nation of submerged egos where people were so overawed by the events around them that the individual ego seemed petty by comparison. Well, then out of that era of the submerged ego, then came this new wind of cultural change that led us into the 1960s when self-effacement, when humility almost became understood as conformity and stifling of self-expression. And so we entered into a time of expressive individualism where instead of being humble before God and, and before history, we wanted to get in touch with our own inward divinity. And so if it felt good, we did it. 
Right? In the words of the great Muhammad Ali, I am the greatest. And so, of course, I'm going to leap up onto the stage and grab the microphone and do pretty much whatever I want. And here's what David Brooks writes. The display of mass modesty at VJ Day feels so far away, it seems like a glimpse into another world. It's funny how the nation's mood was at its most humble when its actual achievements were at their most extraordinary. We were most humble even when our achievements were most extraordinary. And isn't that what we see when we look to the cross? The most stunning, unlikely, extraordinary victory history has ever known. The once and for all and final victory over sin and evil and even death itself achieved through the humility of a suffering God. And when the church is at her best, she has modeled this posture, this way of living, this humility and suffering love, even when her achievements were extraordinary. That's the way of the cross. And that's what God is inviting us into together as one body. <coughs> so may we resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.